this. What were you doing the first time you made a million dollars? You talking to me? Yeah. You're assuming I made a million dollars more, more than one time? Maybe. I don't know, actually. What was I doing the first time I made a million dollars? I mean, you could be like me. You could have made it and lost it and made it and lost it, in which case I could answer several times what was the first time I made gone from zero to a million <laughs> times. I'm assuming you're smarter than me and a slightly more mature individual and you made a million dollars and you somehow held on to it and maybe kept going. So when you first, when you made a million, what were you doing that moment? You realized, the, oh, I have a million dollars. There was no such moment. I mean, I, I guess there was a moment when I crossed that threshold, but mine has been a long, slow, extremely undramatic. My my money management life has been long and slow and extremely undramatic, aided by an older brother, who everybody should have such an older brother. My brother Peter's 10 years older than me, so I'm the youngest of eight, and I grew up, like many people, being befuddled by money. Just like, you know it's a thing you want to have, and... When I was a kid, I had all these jobs. I didn't get money from my family. Um, I had all these jobs, and they paid so poorly, and they were so hard that I literally, I just did not understand how anybody could like have enough money to buy even a car, much less a house, and so on. Like, you know, I'd have jobs bailing hay or picking rocks or rolling sod that paid like, you know, this was a long time ago, but still, it was two or three dollars an hour. I work all day and be really, really tired and have 20, 30 some dollars in my pocket. And then I just want to go to the store and buy like candy and soda and a couple lottery tickets because it just seemed like there's no way. What lottery tickets did you think you were going to win? I guess so. Um, If you want to be as rich as Bill Gates, guess how many $100 million jackpots you have to win in a row each week? How many weeks in a row you have to win? Tell me. 800,000 weeks in a row. No way. That's, That's not possible. Just do a little math. Oh, oh, maybe it's eight hundred weeks in a row. I'm yeah, sorry. There's, there's no no way that's possible. <laughs> well, let me just tell you, eight hundred weeks in a row. That also two, will be three. How many? How many billions does he have? Eighty. Eighty billion. Oh, okay. Yeah. That kind of lucky streak. Yeah. Not gonna. But happen. Uh, so, if the question is where was I? I mean, that's a very uninteresting answer. I could give a slightly. I could try for a slightly more interesting answer about like you know. Well, what did you do when you realized? Oh, this is like this kind of label that people talk about all the time, and now you hit it. I, d- I just did nothing. For- well, first of all, it depends if you're defining it as um, your total net worth or uh, liquid. So I had bought an apartment, which t- was really hard for me because the sticker shock was so extreme. And I and I, I was not comfortable with um, borrowing. Um, you know, it was really hard for me to borrow a big chunk of money to get a mortgage just because I thought it was insurmountable. And what happens if my career goes south and whatever? But no, I just did little by little. I just learned from my brother all those things that we now know to be kind of wise traditional money management, which I realize you don't like any of these, but the tradition, because you just, that's not your style. That's fine. But like when I was at New York Magazine, my first job, I had a salary that paid like $24,000, which was just kind of barely enough to live on. Um, in New York at the time, but then I could write freelance and get a check for four or five hundred dollars for an article. So I would, was writing as much as I could, and then basically I treated a hundred percent of that extra money as extra money. In other words, I wasn't just going to spend it because I was already covering my nut with the twenty-four. So I'd take it and divide it into whatever I thought was appropriate. So there was in the in the beginning, it was paying down college loans, paid those off relatively fast. 
Then it was um, starting to invest and save, and I just became a very, very, very boring and conservative um, person so that um, it just kind of kept growing. And then I started making more, and then it was easier to put away bigger chunks. But that's it. That's all I got, brother. Also, I did read the book The Millionaire Next Door, which I loved. You read that book? I haven't actually. Like, it's really I probably should have because I know it praises, you know, prudence and frugality and and so on. So you can't even recognize the millionaire next. That's exactly right. The the story of how to become a millionaire is not as some people say. You know, make a billion and then open a restaurant. Is that what it is? <laughs> but <laughs> um, air, as Warren Buffett says, make a billion and buy an airline. Okay. No, yeah. The, but- <laughs> the way to make a billion is to start with two billion and buy an airline. Okay. <laughs> Um, but That's, that Warren Buffett always with his folksy, you know, <laughs> we all have like a billion, but two billion. <laughs> then like, you're something. That's something special. So I have to say, by the time I got past a million, it wasn't that long ago, and it had gotten to the point where having a million dollars in New York City among my peers, it didn't seem like any. Yeah, you're poor. Gigantic. Yeah, I'm pretty poor. Well, let's real, talk real about thing. the the economics of Freakonomics. So you sold a lot of books. Can people make a million dollars from selling even like a, a how many weeks was Freakonomics on the bestseller list? Well, it was on the first book was on the hardcover list about uh, I think a little over two years. That was that's a that's long. That's incredible. Yeah, that was books don't unusual. do that anymore. Yeah, I don't books think. don't do that. Like when was the last? What in your mind? I don't know if you know the exact answer, but well, what's the, like the last book that you could think of that was on for two years on the bestseller list? Yeah, that, that's pretty rare. Um, I think that if you looked at the bestseller list right now, you wouldn't see anything that's been on for close to two years. But but let me just ask you again: the economics of free economics was that enough? Just that one book being on the bestseller list for two whole years, which is extremely rare. Almost Almost as rare as winning the hundred million dollar mega jackpot for eight hundred weeks in a row. Um, no, w- was that much, after much, taxes, much less rare than that? W- was that after taxes enough to put you over the million dollar mark? After taxes, well, agent split, co-author split, publisher split. Yeah, probably. Okay, probably. I so mean, that's what the, you have to the do. basic math of book writing these days is you get an advance. But the advance is an advance against royalties. Typically, this is with a traditional M- publisher. Meaning that the royalties first go to the publisher until it pays back the advance. Yeah, it's just like any... I mean, in this way, publishers are acting a little bit like venture capitalists. They are they are seeding it. Um, they're seeding your operation, and they own a certain uh, amount of the finished product. So, for instance, with books, they're going to give you... And they have to recoup their costs. So with a book, they might give you an advance of whatever, $20,000 for a relatively small book, a million dollars for a relatively gigantic book, but then that first $20,000 or $100 million comes off the top as the publisher is starting to recoup their costs. And then after you reach that recoupment, then there's usually a pretty standard royalty rate. And the royalty rate for books, I'm curious to know if you know what it is for among traditional book publishers. About many 15%. People, 15%, which is relatively, one would argue, crazy low. And that's off the crazy price. Low. It's not off the retail price. Um, that is not true. I believe it's off the list price. So award- Not the retail price, but the list price. Okay, but so let's say a book sells for $20 in the bookstore. Yeah. What's, what's the list price? If it sells for $20 in a bookstore? Yeah, the retail price it, is 20 It depends who the retailer is and what they're discounting. So like a lot of bookstores don't discount books. So a, cover, a retail, a sticker price will be $28, let's say. Some stores will choose to sell it for $20 with a big discount. Some will not. Um, well, let's so- say it compared to the, the price on the, on the book. 
Well, it depends. Like Amazon is notoriously a 30 or 40% discounter. Barnes & Noble discounts less, although they do have some kind of standard discounts for bestsellers and so on. And then there are smaller bookshops that literally don't discount. So it depends. But it, the point is, is it's the, the royalty is drawn off the list price, not the sale price. Okay. But anyway, even so, 15%, let's say it's a $30 book. So 15% is $4.50. That is the share of the book sale that is going to the author, which sounds crazy. What do you mean? The author is the one who wrote the book. But the publishing industry has been set up in a way that the way the, the way it works, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, although I think it's nuts, is that they will pay up front a lot of money to a lot of writers, advances, for books, 90% of which probably don't earn out. And then the way that they can make themselves solvent is by getting that 85% share of the rare big book that does earn out. That's that's the traditional the, the, publishing model. The rare model. big book that not only earns out but has the, the, the staying power to keep selling a little bit each year so that it's just a steady flow of income without any additional work being done Correct. by the publisher. Exactly. Where this conversation is going, nobody knows. Stick around to find out. We just have to take a short break. Thanks very much to Allstate for sponsoring this episode. James, usually you and I were up for a good debate, but there's no room to argue with this opportunity with Allstate. And trust us, we tried. There's just so many benefits to opening your own Allstate agency. Instead of finding a problem, we came to this conclusion. Why wouldn't you want to do this? Because with Allstate, you're going to own your own business, a business where you get big rewards for growth, unlimited earning potential, and a lot of equity for the future. And when you're the boss, you create the office culture and vision for the workplace with the power of the Allstate brand behind you. Working with the Good Hands Company is about helping people live the good life. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal. So if you haven't thought about opening your own Allstate agency, you should. Head over to allstateagent.com slash question of the day after the show to see stories from successful agents subject to the terms of the agency agreement. Let's even go further. So you make $4.50. Off the top of that is 15% to the agent or how, what percent to the agent on average? For the typical writer, mm-hmm. um, I would I think most agents these days are getting 20%. Okay, although so it might be 15 to the agent. So now you're left with... 360. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a co-author, so right. you're $1.80 each. Right. Taxes, yeah. let's put you down to a dollar uh, mm-hmm. each. So, right. out of, so out of a $30 book, you made a dollar right. per copy yeah. sold. And that's hardcover. That's Once you get into paperback, where the vast majority of books are sold. Now, our book was unusual in that it did sell a lot in hardcover, and that, that's fairly how, unusual. How many copies? Um, I don't really know. In the U.S., I think we got about two million in hardcover, wow, that's and then great. elsewhere around the world, there were some, but most other foreign publishers go to paperback much, much sooner. Uh, Brit Britain has a funny tradition: nobody buys hardcovers in Britain. They publish them, and then they even the biggest books don't sell that well in hardcover. It's the paperback publication that's kind of seen as the the primary publication in, in a lot of ways. In which case, like, let's say if most of the sales were in paperback, you might get, like, 50 cents exactly. per copy. Yeah. As, t- as total take-home, though. Yeah, exactly. After everything. Yeah, not so much. So, so, so the next time that somebody's out there actually goes to the trouble to buy a book from a store, which almost nobody does anymore. I mean, you know, obviously, book sales still exist, but they're greatly diminished from where they were even 15 years ago and especially 15, 80 years ago. 
uh, especially per capita. But the fact is, is that the next time you spend twenty or thirty dollars on a book, <laughs> realize that the writer is actually getting somewhere from between one and four dollars. So there's a couple lessons I derive from this. One is that don't write books. Well, or write for the pleasure of it. But the other is, is that if you want to write for books, a lot of people go into the dream that oh, they're going to write a book and quit their job, which is is rare. You I mean you were on the bestseller list for two years? So. Uh, but I think, and this is, relates to another podcast we did about specialization versus generalization, you can't just make money from writing a book because A, it might not, probably won't be a bestseller. Very few are bestsellers like that. B, there's also, you have to get good at other things. You have to do speaking engagements. There's consulting. You started doing radio shows. You started doing podcasts. You had a, uh, there was a movie, Freakonomics. Did you make any money on Freakonomics, the movie? Mm, tiny bit. I mean, basically. You got paid for the rights to it? Yeah. Or did you get we, more? Yeah, we didn't make the movie. Uh, that was the rare, maybe the only case where we've ever uh, had someone use our name, Freakonomics, to make something editorial, and that was um, it's kind of a you know a, a high risk experiment. But it turned out that the guy who did it, a lot of people had come to us asking to do something like that, and the guy that we ended up going with was a guy who was not a high profile uh, film producer, but he was a man of integrity and super smart and had a great idea. His who name was is it? Chad Troutwine, who who had produced a number of films smaller Hollywood fiction films. And he, you know, he has a company called Veritas Prep, which is a test prep, uh, a business school test prep company, which is very successful. And he'd done some real estate, young guy, smart. I just liked him a lot. And his plan, I thought, was really smart. He said, since this book is kind of an omnibus kind of book from the start, it's not a single topic book. It's not a novel with a narrative. Since it's an omnibus, what if we make a documentary version that is similarly omnibus where, where he would hire four or five documentary film directors and give each of them like a chapter or a story that they would make. And so he got these really, really talented and high-profile documentary filmmakers, Alex Gibney, Morgan Spurlock, um, Eugene Jarecki, a few others. They each took their part and they developed it, and then the film was put together. So it wasn't a great film, but it wasn't embarrassing to us. We didn't do it for the money. I, you know, We got a little bit for allowing them to do it, but uh, it kind of fit the whole spirit of what we do, which is fun and telling interesting stories and 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 so on. And and you also had a free economics game. Did you make any money on that? No, I don't think we ever made the game, did oh, we? Oh, you never made the game? Uh, we talked for a few years to a number of game makers about it and uh, just could never get comfortable with the right uh, partner to pull the trigger. So the other thing I take away, the other takeaway I have from this is the benefits of self-publishing. So you self-publish a book, and whatever your price is on Amazon, you get 70% as opposed to the 3% you got for every copy of Freakonomics. Right. The big question is the trade-off of what does the publisher actually... What I mean, this is a big... This is a, the question of publishing, which is what value does a traditional mainstream publisher provide? So... Their argument Certainly is... Certainly many self-published books have become massive bestsellers it's true. in millions. I mean, honestly, if you looked at publishing as investing, right and you're looking for a certain kind of stock or whatnot, the best kind of value publishing program that I could envision would be to never sign up a book originally for yourself, never pay a mainstream large advance to any book that wasn't yet written, which is what they do, and instead master the market of self-publishing, know that market incredibly thoroughly, and it's a relatively large market, 
And just basically, you're trying to buy those value stocks. You're trying to find the five books a year that are self-published that do well enough that you think that with the proper push from you and investment from you, they've already proven themselves, right? Well, and publishers do that, like Fifty Shades of Grey. They do, but they do, but they're pretty inefficient. They're pretty inconsistent. It's pretty random. Yeah. And as far as I know, and I may be wrong, there may be publishers who do this now. As far as I know, those are kind of a side business. Like I'm a publisher. I'm going to publish 400 books a year. And if we spot one gigantic uh, self-published book, then okay, we'll add that to the portfolio. What I'm saying is the portfolio could be constructed entirely of self-published books. And maybe there are people who are doing that now for all I know. I like this. I like this as a business idea. Raise a little fund to buy the to option the rights on popular self-published books to then kind of uh, auction them off to publishers. Now the trick is if you're going to be a self-publishing publisher only, then how do you have a high enough profile and enough leverage to actually provide enough value to those self-publishers to blow up the book because that's what you want to be able to Distribution do. Distribution to bookstores is the main thing they offer, uh, but well, marketing I don't know, marketing, you know, self-published writers market via social media. They already have big platforms. Tis true. What would we call this? Tis. Is that what we should call our publishing house? Tis. Tis rhymes with bliss. Piss. Not what I was thinking. I think that's miss. Kiss. Kiss. How about we call it kiss publishing? I like the idea of starting a podcast saying, what was it like when you first made a million and ending it with kiss? Listen to a clip from the next question of the day in just a moment. But first... With Allstate, there's no need to pick sides. You can own your own business and be your own boss. This opportunity is a no-brainer. So head on over to allstateagent.com slash question of the day to get more information about opening your own agency. You never know how the conversation might go on Question of the Day, but here's a taste of what the next episode will sound like. I have a lot to say about this, but I don't need to say any of it because I'm eager to know what you have to say, seriously. Question from Cora is, why is soccer not more popular as a spectator sport in the United States? As you probably know well, it is easily the biggest spectator sport around the world. 